Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. The coronavirus pandemic has upended nearly every facet of life in some way. One of the biggest impacts has been to force a rethinking of our assumptions about where people live and work. Suddenly, the need to converge in person at a workplace was in question, and the vitality that has characterized the renaissance of big cities across the globe, including Boston, seemed to disappear overnight. The question now is how this experience will reshape cities and the economy in the longer term as we emerge from our pandemic bunkers. Harvard economist Ed Blazer is one of the world's foremost thinkers about the role of cities, and he joins us this week on the podcast. Ed, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So it was uh, just, I think, exactly a decade ago that you put a lot of your thinking about cities together in a wonderful book. It's called The Triumph of the City, How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier, and Happier. So 10 years later, are we, uh, are we sort of witnessing the end of that triumph? Well, it's somewhat telling that uh, I have a, a new book coming out, which is titled Survival of the City, uh, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. So we've gone from triumph to survival. Uh, so I, I don't think that in any sense the core arguments of that book have been upended. But we certainly have been reminded that uh, contagious disease is a long-standing companion of city life, right? I mean, the plague of Athens leveled that, you know, brightest of lights in the Mediterranean world 2,400 years ago. In the 19th century, American cities, including Boston, were routinely hit by epidemic events, yellow fever in the first decades of the 19th century, cholera in the middle, middle decades, influenza in 1918, 1919, that were far deadlier than COVID-19 ha has been. Um, of course, our economy has, if anything, become even more vulnerable uh, to an airborne disease than it was in the past. And we've become rich enough so that we basically de-urbanized our world in a heartbeat, right? I mean, if, if you, know, you accept the definition of cities as the absence of physical space between people, the social distancing that we've lived through for the past year is a rapid-fire de-urbanization uh, of our world. Right. And I guess, uh, I mean, to your point about, uh, you know, sort of plagues and infectious disease having long been with us, and they are particularly... Uh, exact a particularly high toll on cities. And that's been true, uh, you know, forever. I, I mean, maybe the real revelation for some people has been that they're not gone, right? We kind of, I think we entered this period where we were told, at least in the, in the advanced world, that, that infectious disease was a thing of the past for us or remained only kind of a worry of the, of the developing world. And, and increasingly, you know, the causes of death in, in developed countries were the chronic diseases of aging. A absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, we've had a blessed century. Uh, and during that century, large-scale infectious events have been very rare. Um, and we've gone from a point, you know, in 1900, a boy born in New York City could expect to live six years less than a boy born in rural America. That was all because of infectious diseases. And for much of the past decade, you know, cities like Boston and New York have, have enjoyed healthy life expectancy premia. Uh, over other parts uh, of America. Um, and this just reminds us that both because cities are nodes on the global lattice of transport and travel, and so they're the points of entry for new bacteria, just as they are for, for new people. Think about those American tourists returning from Italy in February and March of, of 2020 and bringing COVID-19 back with them. And then, of course, cities also feature dense interactions between human beings, and, and that's how the disease then spreads. Now, an airborne pandemic like COVID-19 is sufficiently contagious that it can inf 
it can infect the Dakotas almost as easily as it can infect New York and Boston. It just takes longer to get there. Um, but I think the big question in terms of the disease side is, is will this thing prove to be a one-off? Will the vaccines that we're luckily enough getting, so miraculously getting after only a year, will they prove to be effective against all the COVID-19 variants or will this, this thing persist for a while? And, you know, will we take the steps going forward to make sure that this is a one-off event? Will our governments make the investments that they really should have been making all along to protect us against the risk of, of future pandemics? And, and, and how do you think about uh, what this all says about uh, the future of cities as kind of, you know, economic engines of innovation? You and others have done a lot of work on just sort of what a rich, uh, Maybe it's bad to be using sort of somewhat uh, sort of disease-related metaphors, kind of a petri dish for for ideas, not for uh, viruses or bacteria. But uh, you know, they've been this rich, fertile ground that uh, we've seen certainly in our region. You know, in the in the last couple of decades, has just driven our economy to these great uh, heights. And um, now, though. You know, is some of that in question whether whether we really do need to be sort of gathered here in this very high cost area, you know, with uh, with, you know, global warming threatening us at the coastline and all sorts of things. Let's just let's just move, uh, you know, the innovation spread it all around the heartland and and, and no one will be any worse for the wear. <laughs> I think there are two separate questions, one of which is, is face to face urban life? in uh, under under threat. And the second is, are particular cities, including Boston, more vulnerable than ever? And I think the answer to the former question is no. Uh, I think for a variety of reasons, and I'm, I'm happy to go into them. Uh, I think that human beings are desperate to get back to be with each other live, not just Zooming. Um, but I think the answer to the second question is surely yes, that in fact, we have particularly if our elected leaders decide that they're going to engage in uh, aggressive, progressive, uh, redistributive politics, uh, businesses in the rich have never, uh, it's never been easier for them to relocate, whether it's to Miami or Austin, Texas. And so we really are under a kind of threat we haven't faced since the 1970s, where relocation is, is a genuine possibility. But if I may, let me start first on the why I think urban life isn't going away, both at home and in, in, the, in the workplace. So you, you raise this you know, incredible capacity that face-to-face -face contact has for enabling the, the chains of collaborative creativity that have powered humanity's greatest hits for thousands of years and you know, still seem to, right? I mean, think about Facebook being born in conversations on the Harvard campus uh, 20 years ago. Um, we have a, a whole uh, set of, of new evidence on what happens when you go remote. And I think it is compatible with the view that short run productivity can be held up, at least in many occupations. But you lose things. You lose uh, the ability to learn. You lose the ability to come up with new ideas. You lose the ability to onboard new workers. And I'll just give a little bit of the, the data that we have on this. Um, so some of the best studies that have been done on uh, working from home really started with the work of Nick Bloom, uh, who looked at this topic using a Chinese call center, Chinese travel agents, about five years ago through a randomized controlled trial. He found that the workers who were sent home were just as productive at making calls, but they were less likely to be promoted. The work of Natalia Emanuel and Emma Harrington looks at, again, call center employees because you really see their productivity. It's just the number of calls per hour. Um, and again, they look both before the pandemic and then with a the big shock of when the pandemic occurred. Again, productivity actually goes up with these workers, at least initially, 
when they're sent home. Which we've heard a lot of people talking about, right? Anecdotally, people say, oh, I've never been so productive. Absolutely. And Microsoft has produced uh, reports on how their programmers are just as productive as before. But again, the Emanuel and Harrington work finds that the workers are much less likely to be promoted to uh, when they go home. And when you think about what it means for a call center worker to be promoted in this company, it means you go from handling the easy calls that basically anyone can, can handle, you know, uh, to I've, I've got an irate customer who I've really got to talk off a ledge, right? And if you think about it, how do you learn how to talk a customer off the ledge? You learn by being around other, other people. How do you learn, uh, how, to, how does your boss learn that you're good at that? That happens through face-to-face -face contact, and it's just much harder to do uh, at long range. Another related piece of evidence is that, um, and this comes from the work of uh, Jose Ramon Morales Aria and Carlos Daboin, that while the jobs that can be done only can be done live and in person. They, their employment crashed after the pandemic hit, but then both employment and new hires, new postings on the burning glass aggregator, they came back up. But when you look at remotable jobs, their employment was steady, but their new postings have crashed and they have stayed crashed. Okay, Meaning that people, even though the programmers were allegedly just as productive, the new hires for programmers were down by 40% in November relative to February. People weren't onboarding new workers, which is really compatible with the view that it, you can coast on old relationships, right? But you can't start something new. And I will say, this is exactly my experience, and I don't know what yours is, but you know, when it comes to working with long-term PhD students that I advise, it's great over Zoom, it's just fine. When it comes to getting some 19-year-olds that I've never seen before excited about mathematical economics over Zoom, I've got no idea how to do that, and I don't think I'm ever going to be able to. And I think the last point is, you know, fine, if you're a mid-50s, and I'm having my 54th birthday tomorrow, so this is, this is I'm conscious of this, particularly right now, um, mid-50s person with a comfortable home office, yeah, it feels kind of productive, it's kind of pleasant to be around the family. If you're a 25-year-old living in a small, small apartment in Somerville, like, working from home does not sound like the best thing in the world for you. I mean, you want to be back in with your friends, you want to be back in a collegial atmosphere where you can connect with other people. And so the joy part of work is also, I think, lost when we're not together, which means, at least to me, that I think the office will be back. I think face-to-face -face work will be back. and It'll be back with a vengeance. And even more so, the desire, particularly of younger people, to be out in cities connecting with younger people, both at work and at play. But that being said, you know, they can do that from Austin, Texas. They can do that in Miami. And, you know, there will, there's no reason why you shouldn't think that, you know, a whole bunch of, of young startups will relocate from Silicon Valley to Vail or from Boston to some place that, you know, to Honolulu, say. So I, ha I had a th PhD student who did his defense from Honolulu yesterday. So, you know, it clearly is possible. So I, I think Boston has to really think that it's going to have to fight hard to retain the pools of talent that it's kept. Right. I mean, to your point about sort of, you know, uh, a lot of operations can kind of coast, uh, that, that would be a real danger for Boston to, to coast, which has sort of been a theme, I think, for a long time, even before this, that people worried about whether we've, you know, whether we and maybe other regions like ours that have been enjoying success, there's always this sort of danger of kind of resting on your laurels and not sort of looking sort of around the corner, right? Completely, completely. And, uh, you know, the, the battle is going to be fought uh, to a large extent on quality of life. Uh, and it, it's, you know, th those are sort of crucial things for Boston to be, to be worried about going forward and crucial things for the next mayoral, uh, the next mayor to be focused on. Yeah. And is there, is it possible that, that, um, that, that, that what we may see is kind of a more nuanced thing in terms of the sorting that goes on? And I guess what I'm thinking about is that, um, I mean, I think you're arguing that even sort of knowledge workers whose work doesn't 
doesn't depend on sort of a physical activity per se, that there's going to be something lost if they're not sort of able to be together. But we seem to realize that that's just sort of true demonstrably and uh, unquestionably for, for knowledge workers who, who have a physical component to what they do. And I guess I'm sort of thinking of our rich life sciences sector here. And we've been seeing, even during the pandemic, there've been all these questions about what's gonna to happen to the commercial real estate market and office buildings, but there's been this enormous run on lab space and demand for lab space that's just sort of been you know, going sort of steady or even taking off during the pandemic. And is that, is there kind of gonna be a, do you think there's sort of a, gonna be a sorting there of the kind of innovation slash knowledge work that is stays more tethered to cities? Quite possibly. I mean, certainly when I when I talk about, you know, taking the pandemic seriously, that invariably means spending more on stuff related to, to biological research. And that's got to be good for Boston. Right. I mean, we've got a lot of fixed infrastructure in this, both human and physical. And so that's that's sure to be a, a short term burst to our uh, to, to our commercial real estate market. Um, other activities, I would say the sort of mature banking's banking-related activities, that's got to be a negative hit to demand. Now, I don't see large-scale vacancies in Boston. So take an area like the Innovation District, right, built for scrappy startups who, in the fullness of time, were largely bid out of that area because, in fact, banks, financial service firms, were willing to pay more. So uh, maybe, you know, some of those banks and financial service firms will then relocate to Miami or some other cheaper locale. And, you know, the scrappy startups will go where Mayor Manito wanted them to go originally, and they'll, they'll move back in. So I sort of have a vision that we'll sort of see a little bit of a move from older companies to younger companies, from older, uh, from older workers to younger workers, and maybe even from older residents to younger residents. But, you know, when you think about the sort of, you know, the face-to-face -face contact is dead, this is not the first time we heard this. I mean, Alvin Toffler wrote in the third wave in 1980 that new forms of information technology were going to make face-to-face -face contact and the cities enable, that enable that contact largely obsolete. For 39 years, he was wrong, right? And he was, he was largely wrong because what he didn't seem to understand is that these new technologies would also change the nature of work. It would lead to a world that was much more information intense, that was much more innovation intense, and that was much more complicated. And that's a world, right? The more complicated the idea is, the easier it is for that idea to get lost uh, in translation, and the more valuable face-to-face -face contact is. And I think, you know, I certainly believe in the ability of people to learn better when they're face-to-face -face and of the ability of those unplanned face-to-face -face interactions to lead to remarkable intellectual events. But I am even more sure, and I believe this is true in labs and in offices as well as in, in universities, that, you know, uh, I hope, I believe that I'm more innovative when I'm around other people, but I know my life is much more joyful when I'm actually going to work surrounded, surrounded by other people. And I think the surest bet for why face-to-face -face contact is, is going to come back is that for lots of people, you know, share my view that actually being around other humans is actually a good thing. And I think that's likely to continue. One more point I'd like to highlight about the sort of, you know, the possibility of a Zoom future. Look, at, look for a second at the data from May 2020. In May 2020, 50 million Americans were Zooming to work and 50 million Americans had lost their jobs uh, due to COVID. But you know, if you ask yourself who was Zooming to work, 68.9% of Americans with advanced degrees were Zooming to work. 5% of high school dropouts were, working, were Zooming to work. 15% of Americans with high school diplomas and no college were Zooming to work. If you think of a world in which it's actually going to be telecommuting, that is going to be an even more unbelievably unequal world than the world that we currently inhabit. And I think it's worth a lot to make sure that doesn't happen. Right.
and um, and even as you're sort of arguing for those who who can zoom to work, I mean, as you've said, that there's going to be limits to the vitality. Or I mean, it's sort of fun to to hear an economist sort of uh, put value on something that's seemingly intangible, like or hard to measure like joy, although I'm sure since economists measure everything, there's been <laughs> studies that have measured levels of joy. And, and so what you're saying, there's probably sort of some real, also sort of empirical basis for, for that uh, claim. For sure. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of happiness work on connecting with other human beings as being part of part of happiness. But also from an economist point of view, uh, you know, we look at what successful tech firms do. I mean, Google didn't send all their workers home. They bought the Googleplex. They bought a million and a half feet in downtown uh, Manhattan. Uh, tech firms are doubling down on buying in, in large cities during this time period. And it's partially the way that they work. Right. I mean, Google Google tries to bring lots of people, as do many tech companies, brought lots of young people together. They try to create fun things at the atmosphere. And in the, in the office to actually make it enjoyable for them to work long hours. And, you know, they understand that for these workers, they're sort of prosperous enough that the work has got to have meaning and, and you know, be enjoyable as well as just being remunerative. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of a pretty big believer in the power and wisdom of markets. And, and so I guess I wonder, what do you think about some of the efforts that we've read about to, uh, I guess, create incentives to to harness the mobility that we're suddenly waking up to amid the pandemic. I just read today in the New York Times had a story about an effort in Northwest Arkansas of all places to lure professionals who can work there remotely. Uh, They're offering $10,000 payments and then they're even throwing in a free bicycle, which turns out there's a lot of bike trails in that area. I thought it was maybe kind of a a, a nod to sort of Brooklyn hipster uh, uh, sensibility. But but the idea is that these folks, you know, won't be competing with people in the area in the area for jobs. They'll just they'll all be upside. Right. They'll be bringing their spending and property tax payments to boost local services. But they're not really a a threat, per se. I mean, are these is this something that could become sort of a big trend or is this just kind of an interesting little interesting one offs or two offs that we're seeing? I think we are. I mean, this is this is the essence of the the vulnerable city hypothesis. That in fact um, we are at a particularly competitive mode for for cities. And uh, you thought you had a lock on these people. You thought you had a lock on these businesses, and they can move. And Northwest Arkansas is is doing their best to get into the competitive race. Uh, and what I like about this is they're actually competing for people rather than just trying to come up with some big bonus for a firm from relocating. And that's that's I think one of the one of the attractive things in that. And I always think that that's, I mean, as, as difficult as it is for cities not to engage in the race for the next Amazon headquarters, uh, I, I have always argued uh, that the healthier thing is to fight to make your place as attractive as possible for, for ordinary people, right? The future of Boston comes from not attracting from some big uh, established business, but from getting the next great startups, right? From you know, attracting and training smart people and then more or less getting out of their way. So I think uh, we are going to see a highly competitive uh, world out there and Boston better be ready for that. The other thing Boston really needs to be ready for is a lot of businesses have closed due to COVID. And this is a time in which it is more important than ever for the city to rethink the barriers that it puts up to local innovation. Um, And it is somewhat outrageous, in fact, the the anecdote about uh, Facebook uh, sort of brings this to mind, that it is 
that the entrepreneurship of the rich is so much less regulated than the entrepreneurship of the poor. That if you want to start your internet phenomenon in your Harvard College dorm, there are basically no regulators looking over your shoulder until you've got a billion users and it possibly influenced an election, right? If you want to start your, you know, grocery store in Alston Brighton, uh, you know, you've got 15 permits to go through to get, to get that thing done. This is a perfect time for Boston to think about how to speed up the permitting process so that businesses can reopen post-COVID. Yeah, there's actually a, a, a move by a Boston city councilor recently to try to uh, lessen sort of regulations on home kitchens or people sort of who want to start, you know, food, food related businesses, you know, from home, you know, to sort of get them off the ground. So I think that's a that the point's well taken. I wonder also if, you know, this idea of mobility and the threat to Boston, uh, um, if we think more in terms of the state as a whole, are there opportunities for you know, for central or western Massachusetts, it's not just a threat that we're going to lose them to other parts of the country. But could there be, you know, a little bit of kind of a balancing, rebalancing? I mean, we are a state that sort of suffers from some of this bifurcation of kind of immense wealth and and economic kind of growth in the eastern part of the state, but other areas that have been much more stagnant. So I think the places that have universities. Uh, the places that already have a, a strong basis of, of highly educated people or the places that are just renowned for natural beauty like the Berkshires, sure, they're, they're, they're winners from this. They're, they're, you know, they're more attractive than they have been. People want to move. I have more difficulty seeing Worcester, Springfield, Lower, Lowell, Lawrence uh, taking advantage of this. Um, you have to be, I mean, teleworking skews, very educated. You need to make sure that you've got sort of amenities that are going to be particularly attractive for educated people. Um, and it's possible, but it just feels like it's a harder reach relative to, um, you know, uh, relative to, to Amherst. Right. One last question, uh, is, has to do with how do you think, uh, we should be thinking in terms of state policy? as we approach this. And I guess the sort of more specific question I had in mind has to do with transportation, right? We've been talking a lot about the future of the economy at work, but you know, that, you know, that has enormous implications for how we move about and transportation. You know, we're an area that has been thought of as, you know, or been rated as having the worst traffic and gridlock or one of the worst in the country. So now the T MBTA basically was abandoned, you know, for a period of time, it's slowly coming back. But there's this kind of chicken and egg debate, I think, where state leaders, Governor, the Baker administration has been kind of reluctant to sort of return to the full service level saying, you know, that it's hard to justify it. Yet there are other advocates that say you're kind of spinning a kind of death uh, spiral, uh, putting a death spiral in motion for the T with bad service that's going to sort of make people who have options more inclined to drive. You're going to leave lower, you know, sort of inequality issues where lower wage workers without options are going to be stuck on a sort of even more substandard transit system. Um, I don't know. How do you think about those kinds of public uh, investments going forward? You know, I, I believe in this, you know, this old joke that 40 years of, of transportation economics at Harvard can be boiled down to four words, bus good, train bad. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for the flexibility of buses and you, know, you can just do a, a lot more with them. Of course, they don't solve the traffic problem, but, um, you know, being, being smarter about how to, how to use buses is always a good idea. I have enormous admiration for Steve Poftak at the MBTA. He and I worked together at the Rapport Institute for many years, and I think he's just doing a heroic job under unbelievably difficult circumstances. Um, and I think we're all going to see what, I mean, there's a lot of money 
in the so-called American Jobs Plan for public transportation, right? The, the Biden administration is, is, seems to be very keen on this. And I think the future of public transportation in Boston is likely to hinge quite significantly <laughs> on what comes from the Biden administration in terms of this. So I think it's hard to say what to do. And, and as your question suggests, I mean, this is a, it's a, it's a difficult dilemma, right? I mean, there, there are operating costs. More trains mean higher operating costs. And you're not carrying a lot of, not earning a lot of revenues to offset that. Um, yet, on the other hand, people can make decisions that will, you know, longer term decisions that will lock them into cars. My own view is that we should take a look at this by midsummer and figure out where we are then. So right now we're still sort of getting the vaccination process out. People are still still going to be pretty frightened of getting on, on subways. And so I think we should expect this to be a little bit slow. And also remember that one of the wonderful things about human beings is their ability to forget things incredibly quickly. And so I, I do think that um, that, will, that will play to, to subways advantages going forward. Okay, great. Well, listen, Ed Blazer, it's been a great conversation. Appreciate it so much. Thanks for, uh, for talking. Thank you so much for having me on. And this has been another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.